You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Hey, everybody. I don't know if you've heard, but we have a book coming out. Finally, finally, after all these years. It's great. It's fun. You're going to love it. It's called Stuff You Should Know colon, an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things. Yep, and it's 26 jam-packed chapters that we wrote with another guy named Nils Parker, who's amazing, and is illustrated amazingly by our illustrator, Carly Minardo. And it's just an all-around joy to pick up and read. Even though we haven't physically held in our hands yet, it's like we have, Chuck, in our dreams so far. I can't wait to actually see and hold this thing and smell it. And so should you. So pre-order now. It means a lot to us. Uh, the support is a very big deal. So pre-order anywhere books are sold. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know. What does this got to do with the Olympics? It's 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 equally stirring. I thought you had done the Olympic Games song. That's what I started out doing, and then about two duns into it, I realized I could not bring it to mind, so I just went with the Rocky theme instead. You know. What? The Olympics, well, I don't know if they, would they still be going on right now? Or would they be um, over? I don't know. They could have just wrapped up, actually. It's kind of sad, you know? It's sad for now. It will be encouraging later. I think the Tokyo Olympics, whenever they happen, are going to be a global coming together and celebration of beating coronavirus. Yeah, totally. They'll have That's, to redo those uh, ceremonies. Yes, but from what I read, the Olympic flame is still alive and well in Tokyo. What if the opening ceremonies had little, you know, corona crowns running around and people smashing them with, like, big inflatable hammers? And <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the, we, they tell the story of the yeah. of the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic through interpretive dance. It just has, like, a big giant bat at the beginning. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's the villain. Oh, man. Oh, there'd be plenty of villains in that one. That'd be fun. For sure, for sure. Um, so we're obviously talking Olympic torches, if you hadn't guessed or hadn't bothered to look at the title of this episode, everybody. And I'm kind of excited about this because it's, it's a just died-in-the-wool SYSK episode. 
in that it's very niche. Yeah. It's about one specific thing that's a part of a much larger thing, which we've not yet done an episode on. Yeah, and the kind of thing where one day when you're watching an Olympic ceremony again, mm-hmm. you see that flame. Yeah. You'll have that uh, that insider knowledge. Yeah, you'll think... Oh, goodness. So, um, Chuck, uh, I didn't know much about Olympic torches. I've seen a, a torch lighting or two in my time <laughs> on television only. Yeah. Um, but there's a pretty, it's pretty interesting, actually, the, the, the kind of the history of it and how the things are made. I was reading over a, like, um, I guess you'd call it like a request for proposal, a PDF from like the London Olympics Committee mm-hmm. from years ago, um, basically saying, hey, this is a call out to all designers who want to try their hand at, at, um, designing the London Olympic torch. Here's all the details you need to know. It was really fascinating stuff. And we're going to convey that fascination post-haste. <laughs> of that RFP or of just Olympic torches? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little bit of both, actually. So uh, the history of the torch, we're talking, you know, you got to go back to Greece if you're going to talk about anything Olympic history-wise. And if you go back far enough, you're going to hear a story about Prometheus Stealing fire from Zeus, giving mm-hmm. that to humans. That's how they say we got fire. Sure. And in order to uh, commemorate that, the Greeks had these re- relay races like we all know and love, except instead of passing a little aluminum baton, mm-hmm. they would pass live fire and flame via torch. Yeah. They would set a cow on fire, push it to the next person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Actually, the one thing on Prometheus, I was looking him up. So he was punished by Zeus. Um, for stealing fire and giving it to for humans. For being a bad boy. <laughs> for, yeah, a naughty Monty. <laughs> and um, he had his liver eaten out by an eagle every day. And because he was an immortal titan, his liver would grow back each night, That's and then nice. it would be eaten out, eaten mm-hmm. by an eagle again the next day. That's how I feel these days. <laughs> and eagles eating <laughs> your liver every day. Yeah, it is kind of 2020. But it regenerates, though. Yeah. So, but I mean, the, I guess the, the upshot of all this is that the that fire was extremely important to the Greeks and, and they showed it off as much. So when they started having Olympic Games um, back in, I guess, 776 BCE, yeah, um, they wanted to make fire kind of a prominent part of it. And so they, they, they celebrated this theft of fire from Zeus by Prometheus by having a torch relay where there was basically like um like today's baton relay marathons or runs or whatever you call them but it was with the torch and whoever reached the end with their lit torch won that that relay race and that's how kind of the Olympic torch was born yeah and the, you know the games back then were a very big deal in that uh, they would stop war yeah which is something they loved to do just to take part in these games, and they had these runners, they called them heralds of peace, mm-hmm. that would go all through Greece saying, you know, truce everybody, right? And they would hope they don't get speared. And <laughs> if they made it through, that truce would remain all during the Olympics yeah. uh, until the flame is extinguished, and then they start spearing again immediately. Yeah, and the point was so that anybody who wanted to go watch the Olympics could make it through Greece um, unkilled. To go watch and then make it back home unkilled, hopefully, too. Unkilt. 
Yep. Uh, so if you go back to Olympia, there was an altar there uh, dedicated to Hera, who is the goddess of birth and marriage. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of those first Olympic Games, they would ignite a cauldron at Hera's altar, and they would light it with a with a parabolic mirror. They call it a, a scaphia. And it's sort of like, you know, an Archimedes death ray where you, or a magnifying glass or something where you focus the sun down to that, you know, single spot. If you're a sadistic child, you burn ants that way. You should yeah. never, ever do that. No. It's not nice. No, leave the ants alone. Leave the ants alone. But they would, that's how they would ignite that initial flame. And that flame, the idea is that it stays lit throughout the Olympics. Yeah. So, this is a pretty cool tradition if you think about it. I mean, just because the Olympics have been around for so long today, the modern Olympics, we kind of take this whole thing for granted. But, like, this is a pretty neat tradition that, that I guess just came up out of whole cloth among the Greeks. Yeah. And, and so they were like, we're going to keep this going. And they did for another thousand years while they did the Olympics. But then when the Olympics kind of died out after a, a millennia, um, no, a millennium, the 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 torch and all of that stuff died out with it. Fortunately, the Greeks were a highly literate society, and they wrote a lot of this stuff down. And um, it was rediscovered when the Olympics were revived in the 19th century by a guy named Baron Pierre de Coubertin. <laughs> and he, um, one of the things that he did was to say, um, I really love the Olympic Games. I'm not necessarily aware that there was a torch relay or anything like that. So um, we're going to wait another 30 years or so before we introduce the torch again. That's right. That came in 1928 in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And there they had the cauldron on fire on purpose. But there was – they weren't relaying that torch still. It took till 1936 in Berlin when uh, Karl Diem – he was the secretary general of the uh, organizing committee of the of the games there, mm-hmm. and he said, "Hey guys, we got to bring this back to to the OGs, and we got to get that torch relay going, and we got to light it in Olympia and get it here to Berlin. We got to do it right." Yeah, he definitely did it right for sure. I mean, not only was like the whole thing revived, like the idea of the torch relay, but igniting that torch in. Greece, and then make having it make its way all the way to Berlin. That's pretty cool stuff. And from what I read, that was also right up the Nazis' alley <laughs> in that it kind of connected the Third Reich to the the great Greek and Roman empires um, of yore, which they were super into to try to legitimize themselves. Um, so they went for it. Fortunately, that first Olympic torch, uh, which we'll talk more about the torches, um, it did not have a swastika anywhere on it, which is wonderful that they managed to keep that off of there. I know. That's kind of surprising too, huh? It is extremely surprising. I, but I mean, it really is genuinely surprising. And I'm like very pleased. I was really pleased. I looked at pictures of that torch with like one eye closed. And just I trying to find the, the swastika. Like, no, no. Just I, w- I was afraid I was going to yeah, see sure. it. And I couldn't believe it. And little by little, I was like, it's not there. So <laughs> I was pleased by that. You have been, my eyes, my eyes. <laughs> right. I just turned into Toth from the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark and melt. So uh, the relay at the Winter Olympics, uh, I think it took until 1952 to introduce it at the Winter Games. And... 
They did not light it in Olympia that year. They lit it in Norway because that's where the skiing was born. So they thought they would honor Norway in that way. Mm -hmm. But finally, finally, in 1964, in Austria at Innsbruck, they said, we got to get it together, everybody. We got to get on the same page. Mm -hmm. We got to go winter and summer and start it out in Olympia and relay that thing to wherever the heck we're going to have these games. That's right. And they did. And I, I I actually looked a little bit into the, I guess, the 1952 games where um, they lit it in Norway. They lit it in the hearth of the home of 19th century Norwegian skiing legend Sandra Norheim. It's either Sandra or Sandri, S-O-N-D-R-E. And he was apparently quite the daredevil skier. I saw a quote about him that he was fearless and daring. He ran straight down the most dangerous and challenging hills, rudely waving his cap. Hmm. <laughs> Which just made me love that guy immediately. Yeah, and I think those games ended up in Helsinki. Mm-hmm. But, well, there's a little nugget I'll drop in the next uh, segment here after we break. Oh, I can't wait. Well, I've got another segment or another nugget on that. This, there, one other time in history when the Winter Olympic torch was lit in the hearth of the home of 19th century Norwegian skiing legend Sandri Norheim was in Squaw Valley in 1960 because the Olympic Committee couldn't get their act together fast enough to organize a lighting ceremony in Greece. So Norway st- stepped in again and said, Look, She's got a fireplace. We've seen it in action. <laughs> he, he. Oh, he? Yeah, party at Sandri's house. All right. Sounds I'm sure we're mispronouncing it. Probably so. Rudely waving his cap. You want to take a break yet? Let's do it. All right, everybody. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back, and guess what we're going to talk about? Olympic torches some more. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.
All right, Chuck. So let's talk about um, those RFPs that thrill me so fully. (laughs) Yeah. If you want to be the the firm, the design firm that builds, uh, designs and builds the torch, you got to get in there and you got to submit your proposal. You got to grease some palms. You you (laughs) got to tip the right doorman, if you know what I mean. You have to, you have to spread many goats around that's right to the right people no i think you just submit a proposal and the olympic committee looks at it and they sort of sit there like at uh, the beginning of planes trains and automobiles for three hours in silence kind of twiddling their thumbs looking Mm -hmm. looking looking and -hmm. finally they say the bid goes to you you win the assignment you've got to have a torch that looks great uh, of course, and you've got to have a torch that works because this thing has got to, it's got to stay lit under any condition. It can be, you can get this thing through a hurricane supposedly and it'll have to stay lit. Yeah. I mean, they're pretty serious about this thing not going out. Um, so they build in redundancies. Um, oftentimes there's a couple of different flames working in conjunction to, to make this thing work. Um, but in addition to the 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 actual feel of it and the look of it, like you want to make it so that anybody, anybody basically alive on Earth could carry it. So it's got to be lightweight, typically. Um, I saw usually about a pound or so. Um, it has to... Oh, is that all? Uh, most of the ones in that RFP, the golden RFP for <laughs> from the London Olympics, it had a list. Actually, you got to look this up, everybody. I, I cannot remember. Just search... Um, London Olympic torch proposal, design proposal. <laughs> I'll bet that would bring up this PDF. Anyway. Some sleepy corner of the internet. <laughs> yeah, I found it, and I'm proud as, as punch about that. But um, it had a list of, like, some of the specs of past torches, and most of them seemed to be around one to two pounds. This right. article from How Stuff Works is three to four, but I saw one to two pounds. Maybe that's without being fully loaded with fuel. Sure. And hey, if you can carry something that's two pounds, you can probably put two hands on it and manage the four pounds. Sure. Sure. Although they like you to hold it with one one hand. Yeah, just because it looks cooler. <laughs> uh, these these modern torches that we're looking at were sort of originated at those Squall Valley games in 1960 when a Disney artist mm-hmm. named John Hench designed this you know, sort of the first modern torch that everyone else said, yeah, that's a good idea. That's what we should do. We should have uh, fuel inside of it, and uh, we should have some backup flame inside of it. And they kind of function like a like a camp stove. Sure. A fancy camp stove, basically, is what it is. In the, and we'll get into the fuels and stuff, but in that there is a liquid fuel that becomes a gas. Uh, you know, it's under pressure, and then it comes out these tiny little holes, just like a camp stove or a, like a Coleman lantern. Yeah, and I, I didn't know this. This is pretty cool. Um, there are two two things that have to be designed into it. Well, a couple of things that have to be designed into it. Um, in, in addition to being um, easy to carry by basically anybody, it has to be very light. It has to be aerodynamic. Ergonomic, I think, is another. Sure. If you threw that word around in your bid, they would probably be like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Um, but you you also have to, at least as far as London was concerned, but I got the impression that this was a standard thing, that you have to design in a way to permanently deactivate it after its one-time use so that it can never be lit again, which I thought was kind of cool. I bet you could hack that, though. 
funny enough, I found another weird corner of the internet researching this one at olympictorchrepair.com, which is possibly the most niche retail website I've ever seen in my life. They sell one part, and it is a part designed to fix the 1996 Atlanta Olympic torch. And they don't use the words that it will be lit again. Right. But just from the pictures, Probably from the loud. text, yeah. from everything that I'm seeing, I believe this is a rogue website dedicated to making 1996 Atlanta Olympic torches burn again after they've been purposefully disabled. Well, and you might be laughing, saying, how much could this person be making off this? But here's another little fun fact. There are anywhere from ten to 15,000 of these torches that are built. Uh, yeah. If you'll notice when you see these, you know, and they don't cover all of this thing, or maybe they do in some dark corner of the Internet. I'm sure somebody does. <laughs> covers, I might end up doing it in the future as a hobby. <laughs> covers each and every passing of the torch, but they don't actually pass the torch. They light the other person's torch, and then they run away, and then you never – the camera doesn't hang on the person who just, you know, is standing there with their torch, and you think, mm-hmm. what happens to those things? Mm-hmm. Well, you're allowed to buy it if you want. Uh, the one from Japan this year was going to cost about 600 650 bucks American. That's a steal. Have you seen that thing? Yeah, it's good looking. They're beautiful. Have you seen the overhead shot where it looks like a cherry blossom? It's wonderful. I think so, too. And that is a price uh, that's basically at cost because the, a- the IOC nor the AOC can profit from the sale of Olympic torches. That is not a side hustle for her. <laughs> no. So, yeah, do, don't believe what the right says. I know. <laughs> she can't actually make any money off of Olympic torches. So um, that's basically cost. And uh, it turns out there's quite an aftermarket for these things too. Uh, I think there are right now two complete collections for individuals in the world and another guy that's close and they cost anywhere from fifteen hundred to four thousand for the newer ones, mm-hmm. fifteen to seventy grand for older ones, and I think the priciest ever was that nineteen fifty two Helsinki one. How much? Eight hundred and eighty thousand dollars. Oh boy! Uh, because they only made twenty two of them, so obviously rarity is is going to drive that price up. The highest I saw was less than that. It was two hundred fifteen thousand for the nineteen sixty Squaw Valley one. Oh yeah, that Disney designer made. Um, and I think I saw, like, they made a hundred of them. So, yeah, you'd have to have some coin to, to have a complete collection. And that's a very niche collection as well. I mean, more For power sure. to you, but. And I have to say, like, a lot of them, you just, they're not very pleasing to the eye. Yeah. There's some ugh Olympic torches yeah. out there. <laughs> I mean, Mexico City 1968 is, if it's not a hand whisk, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Well, it it's homey, maybe. It is, and it was cool. It actually, uh, according to the 2012 London Olympics uh, torch RFP PDF. <laughs> that you that, now have framed on your wall. That is the longest. I'm making T-shirts out of different pages. That is the longest burning Olympic torch in the history of Olympic torches. Most of these things are designed to burn 10 or 15 minutes, which is alarming if you're like, well, wait a minute, we don't want the Olympic flame to, to, to burn out. But as we'll see, these relays are actually super short. Um, this one, the Mexico City 1968 torch, could burn up to 30 minutes. Dude, I like this torch. The whisk? I think it looks great. Huh. 
I think it looks like a whisk. I don't think it looks bad. I just think it looks like a kitchen whisk, and I can't think of anything else but whipping cream when I look at it. I'm looking at two different torches, though, for Mexico. One looks like a whisk, and one looks like uh, sort of like an Aztec club. So... There's two torches? I don't know. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to get to the bottom of this. Okay. Cuz I'm seeing well, two torches. Let me know what you find cuz I'm going to have to <laughs> add it to my niche website about <laughs> Olympic torches. Oh goodness. So um I don't remember where we were going with that. Oh, you're talking about the Tokyo one where you can buy it. Yeah, so sure. When you, you when you have the torch, when your torch relay is done, it's taken from you, disabled, put in its packaging, and then presented to you if you've indicated you want to buy it. And if not, they throw it into the nearest river. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I think that's pretty cool that you can you get to buy it if you want to, and it's disabled, so you can never light it again unless you know the guy who right. runs Olympic Torch Repair. But one of the other things, too, that they, they has become kind of a thing, especially in the last, like, 30, 30 years, maybe more, is sustainability built into these. And you want to – it's not a requirement, but I get the impression – From that, that RFP. <laughs> that's exactly where I got it from. <laughs> that you, you're probably doing nothing but helping your bid if you have figured out some sort of sustainable angle to it, like the Tokyo Torch which again, it's just gorgeous. It's rose gold looking, but it's actually aluminum. And the aluminum is made from former temporary housing that was used after the Fukushima disaster to house some of the residents who'd been displaced. They're really this, pulling at the heartstrings there. Yeah. Yes. I'm sure the person who designed that was like, I got it. I got the thing that's going to get, we're going to win this bid with this. And they're like, is it true? No, but they don't know. No, I made it up. <laughs> No, I shoot down airplanes in my spare time. I have a bunch of them in my backyard. Now I know what to do with them. I like the view from the top better. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Than the side. Yes. And one of the things, I mean, we talked about flames and, and them being redundant. Um, the, 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 you don't want that flame to go out. So one of the things that, that that 2020 torch has is from each of those rounded petals that looks like the petal of a cherry blossom flower uh, provides a flame. And they all come together to, to, to build one big flame. Yeah. But because you have five different smaller flames, that big flame, even if it flickers or wanes, it's never going to go out. Yeah, you've got five redundancies. Exactly. So the fuel, they've used a bunch of things over the years because you want something to burn uh, bright, something that you can see during the daytime. Uh, you want something that's not dangerous. Uh, but there have been some dangerous torches over the years. They, they've used gunpowder. They've used olive oil. Uh, they used to use something called hexamine, which is formaldehyde and ammonia. Can't be safe. And uh, <laughs> naphthalene. So in our soap episode, Chuck, one of the things I didn't get to talk about was that Fells naphtha laundry soap. Yeah. You ever seen that stuff? I don't think so. It's like this hipsterific laundry soap that's old-timey that they still make. But naphtha is benzene. And it's actually really, really bad for you. So they were basically burning benzene in this stuff. And you can, all sorts of bad things can happen, like your red blood cells can rupture. Yeah, that's no good. Uh, you can also <laughs> have nasty smoke, like in the case of Atlanta's, was pretty smoky. Uh, in 56, they had magnesium and aluminum uh, lighting the flame. And there were chunks of flame that fell off. So you don't want that either. You want something that burns clean. It looks good. I think now they use propane and butane, 
which makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, that's what you use in lighters and in gas grills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, like I said, it works like a little like a little camp stove. You've got this fuel being pushed through a valve. Uh, there's a fuel reservoir, and then you have all these little tiny openings, just like a camp, camp stove will. Mm-hmm. And once it <laughs> squeezes through there, it builds up that pressure. Then finally, once it's out the other side, that pressure drops, it turns into a gas, and it's ready to burn at a consistent rate. Right. And again, there's a couple of flames, typically one that burns really hot but small, that is almost like a pilot light for the, the bigger ones in that 2020 torch. There's five of those things. And then you've got the, the, the bigger, brighter flame that, that is big and bold and just says, in your face, world, I'm the Olympic flame. Um, but it's much less stable. It flickers a lot more in the wind, but it's not going to go out because you got those pilot lights. It's too. sort of like the understudy to the Broadway star. Yeah, but the understudy is really the one who's giving the the star all of the suggestions and notes that are making the star a star. <laughs> and uh, we'll get to the route here in a few minutes, but this thing, you know, goes a long way and sometimes even across oceans and sometimes underwater, mm-hmm. uh, which is what happened in 2000 uh, when it went across the Great Barrier Reef very symbolically. And they had a flare inside this thing to keep the flame burning uh, in the water, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. It, uh, did you see video of that? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I saw it live. Oh, you did, huh? Sure. Oh, that's neat. I'm an Olympics guy. I love that stuff. That's cool. Yeah, I didn't see that. I like the Olympics, too. I don't know if I'd say I'm an Olympics guy. Okay. But, I, but I, you're an I, Olympic I, torch RFP guy. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's way more up my alley yeah. than, than running around. Should we take another uh, break? Yeah, I think we've reached break time, if you ask me. All right, we'll come back and we'll talk about lighting this thing and then and that big relay right after this. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.
All right, Chuck. So we're back to talk about the actual lighting of this thing. And if you guys will remember, we talked about lighting the torch using a para- parabolic mirror to concentrate the sun's rays all the way back in the 770s BCE. Well, when the Olympic organizers of the modern Olympics started bringing the torch back, I guess what was his name? Carl Bernheim? Mm. <laughs> I think it was, so the German guy from the 1936 Olympics, mm-hmm. I believe he had this, like, that's what, he went right to it. He was also a sports historian, by the way, which gives away why he was so uh, so privy to all this stuff. But he, um, I, I guess since that time, every time we've lit a torch from Olympia, they have used a parabolic mirror to, to concentrate the sun's rays, and they stick a torch in there, and it catches flame, and then there you have the official Olympic flame that will make its way from Olympia to the host city somehow, some way. Yeah, they make a big show of it. They have an actor dressed as a ceremonial priestess Mm -hmm. in these robes and like the ancient Greeks. And they, you know, they act it out. And uh, the uh, for the Winter Games, they actually, uh, the relay begins at the monument to the guy who spoke of earlier, Pierre de uh, Coubertin. Mm -hmm. who founded those first games. But the summer games, uh, a.k.a. the other games, (laughs) are carried to a fire pot at that altar of, uh, was it Hera? Yeah, Hera, Zeus's wife, sister, sister wife. (laughs) And then the relay begins. And, you know, how this works out is determined at every Olympics. The uh, organizing committee determines the route uh, there's always some silly Olympic theme. Well, it's not always silly. Sometimes it's nice. But I'm I'm not a big theme guy. No? You didn't like the theme of the 1996 Olympics? <laughs> I knew, What's it? I knew you were going to bring that up. That was the mascot. That wasn't the theme. Oh, I thought it was both. I think the theme was redneckery. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was. The theme was get her done. <laughs> I was looking online today because remember they had those, I've talked about them before, those stainless steel pickup trucks? Yeah. In Atlanta, and I was like, where are those things now? Uh-huh. And I could find nary any evidence that they ever existed. So I don't know if they <laughs> scrubbed the internet, but uh, I know you're better at the dark corners of the of the web. So maybe I'll see what I can do. <laughs> maybe we'll go in together and buy one. That would be pretty awesome, actually. <laughs> so, you know, like I said, the route is determined by the committee. Um, sometimes it goes from com- country to country on a plane, sometimes it's a train. Uh, there have been dog sleds. There's been motorcycles and horseback. And if you are a person who is uh, tasked with uh, carrying this thing, like I think you have to be able to go at least 437 yards, 400 meters. Mm-hmm. Got to be at least 14 years old. Mm-hmm. I would like to throw our name in the hat, quite frankly, for a future Olympic Games. <laughs> that'd be kind of neat. That'd be fun. I'd be willing to carry it with you. We could each oh, put a hand fun. on it. Yeah. But – um you're, you know, you're, you've done something for the community, or you're a notable human being, yeah, or, check. or you, or you work for the company who's sponsoring the Olympics, <laughs> right, right. You're a, you're a sea level executive, which is absolutely true. We're not kidding. No, no, and I mean, like, there's sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of people who are involved in this because I mean, if if basically you're running, if you're running like, a, a, a basically a football field and a half. 
and you're going, you're bringing, you're taking this thing, you That's know, thousands of kilometers, <laughs> right? You're like, you need a lot of people to do that. So there's a lot of people involved in the Olympic relay. So there's a lot of people who, you know, yeah, just kind of ended up there because they, you know, they were a sponsor. But there's also interesting people too. There is sure. in, um, sometimes they're not even people, buddy. I was looking at the Pyeongchang 2018 Winter Olympics relay, and there was a robot named Hubo who was a torchbearer. And Hubo not only carried the torch, Hubo drove the torch in, like, basically a a doom buggy Mm -hmm. with a human being in the passenger seat and then got out, approached a brick wall, almost fell over, was righted by some other humans, cut through the brick wall, and then passed the torch through the hole Hubo had cut into the brick wall. That's the level of zaniness that can be achieved with the with the torch relay because there's so many people involved. Can you imagine being that guy? It's like, did you see the Olympics the other day, the torch relay? Oh, did you carry the torch? No, I rode in the doom buggy of the robot. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just looking very nervous. I was a fail-safe, you know, in case he went nuts. <laughs> It was pretty great. They 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 also did um, paragliding. They paraglided. Oh yeah, I remember that one. The um, the torch from one place to another. Um, it's pretty cool. I, like people, they try to outdo each other. Each host city tries to outdo the last. Um, I think Montreal is the one that has has everybody beat. Oh yeah. Oh well, yeah. Let me go on. So in 1976, Montreal hosted the Olympics, and they figured out how to take the flame, transmit it into a radio signal. I'm still not sure how they did this. Shot that signal up to a satellite, and then beamed the signal back down from a satellite to Canada, where it lit another cauldron, another torch. So they basically transferred the the energy from the Olympic flame, shot it into space, and then transferred it back to Earth and converted it back into flame. No one's ever going to beat that. I think that's cute that you bought that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, okay. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about that. You didn't see the guy. He was in the buggy. He was also behind there punching the button. Yeah, the that's relight a thing. button. <laughs> it is a thing for sure. And I hadn't really thought about that. So if you do notice these people that are actually on the street carrying these things, you'll notice they have security. There's actually a medical team. There's plenty of media. They have extra torches on hand because they don't want that thing to go out on camera. And eventually it's going to make its way to the Olympic Stadium where the big secret, you know, they keep it a big secret now who that final individual is going to be. Um, very uh, much kept a lid on because you don't want that getting out because that's the big moment. And that's always a big deal, whoever they choose for that final person to light the cauldron. And there have been a lot of big, big moments uh, throughout the years. And I think Atlanta's, uh, when they came in there, Janet Evans, she didn't even know who she was going to hand it to. Mm-hmm. And out comes Muhammad Ali. That was a really one of the great Olympic moments. I watched it again today, and I was like, why am I crying? What so is wrong good. with me? Yeah. It is amazing to hear that crowd when they figure out who it is at first. And apparently no one no one knew. Like, um, uh, maybe it was Costas who was doing the— Probably Costas, yeah. I think it was, because he hadn't gotten pink eye that year. <laughs> so he was still good to, good to be the commentator. Um, it was Costas and somebody else, and they, they, they didn't know, apparently. Um, and I guess— 
Dick Ebersol, who was a, a longtime NBC executive. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever read that book live from New York about Saturday Night Live? No, but I knew that he was uh, he took over for a little while. Yeah, he he figures big in there, and I can't remember if he did a good job or a bad job, but I I have a good impression of him, so I think he did get. But anyway. Um, he figures big into that book, and that book is definitely worth reading. It, like, goes up to maybe the mid to late 80s, from the start to the mid to late 80s, okay. and it's all just, like, behind-the-scenes interviews and gossip and oral history of, of the whole thing. It's really interesting. But anyway, Dick Ebersol lobbied really hard to to get Muhammad Ali to be the guy because it was originally going to be Evander Holyfield. Yeah. And Holyfield actually ran it for about 10 feet and then handed it off to Janet Evans. Yeah, they had to get him in there. Yeah, and then Janet Evans took it up this ramp, and then all of a sudden, it looks like Janet Evans is going to be the one to light it, and then all of a sudden, at the top of the ramp, Muhammad Ali pops out. And, and the he crowd punches goes, Janet Evans in the face. <laughs> right. And the, the crowd just goes nuts. They're like, he's still got it. Yeah, especially when he when he has it lit and he like holds it aloft oh, and his man. hand is trembling from, from with Parkinson's yeah. tremblers, tremors, and um, they just are going bonkers. It was it's just like you said is probably the the all time great Olympic moment as far as America's concerned. Uh, a few other highlights in Barcelona '92. Who can forget uh, Paralympic archer Antonio Rebolo? That's a great when one he too. shot that fiery arrow. Uh, that was pretty sweet. I can't believe he made it too. Like the just the, the the what they gambled on that. You know, he could have missed. It could have gone out, and it didn't. And he made it, and it lit the cauldron. And it was just beautiful. Well, it actually didn't light the cauldron, but that was the. <laughs> Please stop dashing <laughs> was, my Olympic torch. That was fantasies. an ignition button because you can't take that chance. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what, Chuck. When I form my weird niche little Olympic uh-huh. torch website, <laughs> am I gonna be it's, blocked? It's going to be all fantasy, none of this behind-the-scenes trickery, grittiness. <laughs> it's, it's just going to be face value stuff. Uh, Sixty-four Tokyo uh, when they hosted their first games, they had the Hiroshima baby, uh, aka uh, Yohanori Sakai, was born on August 6, nineteen forty-five, the day Americans dropped the nuclear bomb on Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. He was nineteen years old at the time. He lit that thing. What about uh, Seoul and those cooked dubs? That was rough, man. I did. I wasn't aware of that until we were researching this. Were you? I don't remember that. I mean, I, I certainly watched the games that year, but I, I was probably too young to understand that those doves did not make it out alive. Dude, it's, yeah, I, I put my hand in my mouth like, oh, my God, I, I can't believe what I just saw. That was awful. But they, so they released the doves as part of the opening ceremony, and then some of the doves gathered in the cauldron. <laughs> and It's not funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. No, it's, it's, it's sad. Well, there's a certain element to it that's funny, but in the worst yeah, way. Right. You know what I mean? And the the three people whose job it was to light the Olympic cauldron with their torches, they did, and some of the birds didn't fly away. Yeah, and you can see some of them sort of dancing in the flame. It's it's that part's awful, but the the whole idea of the thing is just so preposterous and it contrary to what they're trying to do with the Olympic spirit that they <laughs> they sacrifice some doves. Yeah, that was uh, tough to watch. So then, um, there's one more. Well, there's a bunch worth mentioning, uh, but uh, worth watching again is uh, Lillehammer, 1994, where um, Stein Gruben, a uh, ski jumper, skis down a ski jump, 
70 meters, which is quite a few feet, more than 70 meters. Well, it's the exact same as 70 meters, but in feet. Um, just going at some ridiculous speed with the torch that won't go out and like lands this jump just beautifully. That was a little nerve-wracking, so, even knowing that it didn't go out. When I was watching it the other day, I was like, don't go out, don't go out. <laughs> right, yeah, because it, it, it looks like it could have at any moment, but no, it stayed stayed straight. And then let's see, there's a couple more mentioning. 1996, 2000, and 2014, the flame went to space, which is pretty cool. Let's not forget 1976 in Montreal. And then um, it was on the Concorde once. It flew on the Concorde, and I believe 1992 for the Barcelona Games. Amazing. So that's it for the Olympic torch, everybody. We'll talk more about the Olympics someday when we do an episode on the Olympics. But in the meantime, hope you enjoyed this. Uh, And since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail. Uh, I'm going to call this Chuck, Check Your Privilege. Did you see (laughs) this one? one? Yeah. Hey, guys. This is in reference to your WASP podcast. Great information. Love the podcast. But at the end, it was almost amusing that you assumed people have the means to hire a professional to remove a wasp nest from their property. I said almost. (laughs) Almost amusing. Equally amusing, which I guess is equally almost amusing, Mm -hmm. is the idea of fashioning a kind of trap. I don't remember that part. Did you say that? I don't know. I say a lot of things. Uh, Risk being stung dozens of times? For what? Uh, Guys, I don't think you should be shoving... PETA style, in quotes, non-lethal rhetoric down people's throats, naysaying the killing of vermin and pests, especially when your solutions don't accommodate outside the middle class. Pretty sure there are poverty-stricken individuals that love to learn and love this podcast as well. You very well could be unintentionally alienating them into thinking that they are being inhumane when in fact they have no choice. Think bigger picture, Chuck. That is from uh, James Huggins. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, James. I'm sorry. I, I, I think the overarching message was leave it alone. Don't mm-hmm. do anything to it. Don't spend mm-hmm. money. I've never paid money to have a wasp nest removed. Do you, do you know, Chuck, I have to tell you, just yesterday I was challenged to, to live up to my own words. And there was a wasp in uh, our screen porch. And I had a fly swatter. And was trying to just lightly move it out. And I was like, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to kill you. And he's like, and I know what that thing is. He wouldn't, number one, he wouldn't come after me. So we proved that wasps are not necessarily super aggressive like they have um, a, a reputation for. Right. But then he wouldn't, he also wouldn't make his way toward the open door, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought of this ingenious method. I grabbed like a little bowl, which virtually anyone on earth can afford. <laughs> Put the bowl over the wasp so that it was trapped between the bowl and the screen. Then I took the fly swatter and I slid it up between the bowl and the screen to create a cover for the bowl and then ran that thing right out of the porch, removed the fly swatter from the bowl, and the wasp flew away like, have a good day. Amazing. That's Emily's method. She gets like a magazine and like a Tupperware for kind of any beast. Works pretty well. Yeah. And uh, that's not elitist. No, it's not. I like. I don't disagree with James's overall message. I think it was more his delivery that's a little, you know, you know, needs work. All. Sure. Okay. So uh, if you want to get in touch with us, and we can 
We can do what we will with your email. Um, you can send it to us at stuffpodcasts at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey everybody, if you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions.